Anyway, let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you this morning again as your people. We honor you for the wonderful news of Christ Jesus, how he perfected forever the sanctified, those given him by the Father. We thank you for his righteousness that we now possess. We thank you for the gift of eternal life. We thank you for the understanding of the truth of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding from not just this message, but understanding of the truth of Christ. We pray that you help your people with the knowledge of Christ. Keep them, encourage them, draw them to yourself. We pray for those who are dealing with all kinds of situations of their life, trials, temptations, pain, job loss, whatever it is that they're dealing with. Lord, may you be with them and may you use those things to continue to remind them of the sufficiency of Christ. We honor you, we glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, good morning one and all. Again, we are going to be in the book of Romans this morning. Book of Romans. I think we're going to be working our understanding, our teaching from verses 18 to 21, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. And this is what the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit recorded and said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, bend in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, 
God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And that is the word of the Lord. It's a mouthful. <laughs> you could have 500 titles to this message, but we're going to have three. Number one title is God's Righteousness Revealed in His Wrath. God's Righteousness Revealed in His Wrath. And number two, which I believe is going to carry the message, is Romans 1 Country. Romans 1 Country. And number three, God gave them over. God gave them over. Apostle Paul has opened the letter to the Romans with his gospel and has laid out the foundations of what that gospel is and telling us that the message that he had was God's gospel that concerned his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and as to his identity, as to his humanity, the son or descendant of David according to the flesh, and as to his eternal origins, his deity, the son of God, as was proven by the resurrection from the dead. So that is the identity of Christ. It really matters, the identity of the Christ that one professes to believe. So this son is the center of the revelation of all things God, all things important, especially the matter of salvation. The Son has come to take the center stage in God's dealings with sinful man because through him and not through Moses, not through the law, we have received grace and salvation, grace to the obedience of faith. So Jew and Gentile, are now held together, not by law, but by salvation that is in the Son. They are held together by the grace of God that is in the Son. And this obedience of faith in the Son is what unites all the elect of God from among the Jews and the Greeks 
such that there's no difference between even the worst of the Gentiles, the barbarians, even women, slaves, the free, it doesn't matter, one station in life, one's race, all those who are the elect of Christ have been united in him as one new humanity. They stand all as righteous in this sun. They stand. If you are in Christ, you are righteous. It doesn't matter what you do today. It's offensive. This is what the gospel is saying. So we stand righteous before God by the way in which he determined to make us righteous. And that way was already accomplished by the obedience of Christ. So we are righteous, we are holy, and we have title to all things blessing with God because of Christ. And the message that Paul brings is that of grace. Grace and peace as things that are already accomplished in and by the Son Things that we already possess. We possess these things. We possess the grace and peace of God. And grace and peace are not a proclamation of the law. That's not what the law brings to you. The law does not declare grace and peace to you. That's what the Son does. The Son is he who brought grace and truth. The law came by Moses. And he could declare, that is Paul, could declare that message of grace and peace because in this gospel, the righteousness of God was revealed. In the simplest and clearest of terms, the gospel is a declaration of God's grace and peace, of things already accomplished, of things already done, that are found and were brought by the Son whose name is Jesus Christ. If your name is not Jesus Christ, you do not cause anything. Okay? That's the simple way to put it. If your name is not Jesus Christ, check your birth certificate. If your name is not Jesus Christ, you do not cause anything salvation. That's very easy. (laughs) And that's not an antinomian idea. In this gospel is the righteousness of God revealed in making sinners like you and I just, that is righteous, but not by a random act, not by a corrupt deal, not by just winking at our sin and sweeping our sin under the carpet, but through the faithfulness of the Son coming and standing on behalf of as many as should be saved, the Son came to stand on our behalf to do all that was required for us to be called the just of God. And Apostle Paul, as a result, is not ashamed of this gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. If you do not believe it, then it is not the power 
of salvation, but it is the power unto condemnation. So the gospel is a double-edged sword. It is for the one group of people who believe it is the power of God unto salvation. To the unbeliever, it is the smell of death. It condemns them. Okay? So it just depends how you are hearing it. So the righteousness in this gospel comes to those who are of faith, but not because of faith. Faith is not the cause, but the evidence of possession of that righteousness. This is a very important statement. Faith does not cause righteousness. It does not cause salvation. It evidences that you actually possess it. The very fact that you believe in this gospel is evidence that you are saved. Don't look to the evidence of salvation to your own doing because you're going to get very disappointed before the week ends. Also, those of faith are not those who caused faith in themselves because none is able to do that. Faith is something that is not found naturally to us, not something that is intrinsic to our nature, like slobber is to our mouths. Slobber is natural to us. <laughs> you don't have to put any effort for you to have any slobber. I'm just having to say that to prove my point. <laughs> Faith is a gift of God to those that we given to the Son to redeem, for which cause God comes now and declares to us grace and peace to them, to say, you are my redeemed people. That's one of the news. But if God's righteousness is declared in this gospel from faith to faith, as Paul says, it is also declared in his wrath towards man because of their sin. In the one case, his righteousness is revealed as he saved his people and imputing to them his righteousness accomplished by the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is what accomplished your righteousness. But on the other hand, he also declares his wrath to the world, to the unbelieving world. And in the way that Paul was given to write this message, he begins with God's wrath with regards to the Gentiles, which would be the subject of condemnation in chapter 1 of Romans. And then he will pick it up with the Jews under the law in chapter 2 of Romans. And so, that takes us to our text for today. Verse 18 of Romans 1, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the wrath of God is revealed, in other words, is made known from heaven. The place of his abode 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And that means none of the sins are accepted. Even the slightest and seemingly acceptable smallest sin calls for God's judgment in hell. God is serious about this matter of sin and righteousness. That is why we deny this thing of people getting better and better in righteousness. Righteousness is an absolute term. It belongs to God alone. God alone is righteous. There's no creature that is righteous by itself. It's impossible. God alone is righteous. And because of that, even the slightest of sin, even just for one second, is worthy of condemnation in hell. Even Jesus hinted at that. See that verse 18 sits in contrast to verse 17. In verse 17, it is God's righteousness revealed from faith to faith in salvation and saying they just shall live by faith. But verse 18 comes in contrast, saying God's righteousness is also revealed in condemnation. His wrath is a righteous wrath. His condemnation is just because men and women are sinners. And now the Holy Spirit seeks for everyone to understand the issue of God's righteousness so that they may have a very good grasp of the matter at hand. We have to understand what the gospel is, what really is the good news about this. God is opposed to all human sinfulness. And so the message of the gospel is not just grace and peace and then, yay, <laughs> Jesus is my co-pilot or my boyfriend. I've seen t-shirts like that. Well, Jesus is my boyfriend. As I said, if you and Jesus are co-pilots, that plane is bound to crash on takeoff. It will never land. Not on heavenly shores. It will never land. The things that have to be understood that magnify the matter of God's grace and mercy. Remember, from our teaching in Ephesians, God has to be praised for the riches of his glorious grace. He has to be praised for saving sinners. So there are issues that we need to appreciate. And once we appreciate those issues, you can tell who is speaking to the glory of God or is just excited to stand in front of people and saying things. Okay? Paul says, God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness or godlessness, which means a lack of proper reverence of God. Men and women naturally have no proper reverence of God because they don't really know him the way they're supposed to. Here the theology 
of man, even this day, it exiles the flesh. It is man-centered. It is free will theology. It is self-determination theology. It has a very weak and miserable, sad and helpless God who is seeking for the company and approval of his creatures, a God who is on high blood pressure medication. Yeah? <laughs> it is ungodliness, lack of reverence, because people do not know who they are dealing with. Men and women have robbed God of his glory for the sake of their own glory, for the sake of building their own Tower of Babel project. God calls that ungodliness and unrighteousness. Unrighteousness not necessarily against other men, but unrighteousness towards God by withdrawing from him what is due the worth of his glorious name because God alone is worthy of glory and honor. And when we take it away from him, God says that's unrighteousness. It makes him mad. So what do men and women do? The Holy Spirit says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. To suppress means, the Greek word translated here as suppress means Literally, to hold down, to hold down so that something does not escape. In other words, to detain the truth continuously, detaining the truth continuously. Men and women are engaged in the activity of continuously holding the truth of God down so as to suffocate and kill it. That's the idea. Men and women detaining God's truth, they imprison it so that it should not come out, should not escape. They suppress it in unrighteousness because they are aware of what they are doing. By this, God is saying they are very aware of what they are doing. They know. And hear this. God is saying, the truth that men suppress is about God. And at this point in the discussion, it is not necessarily the truth about the gospel, but truth as in the knowledge of the existence of God, that God has revealed in or by the light of nature. God has revealed some truth of himself by the light of nature, even without the Bible. And if you're suppressing something, it means you know it exists. You don't suppress that which does not exist, that which you do not know exists. If you are suppressing the truth, you are playing propaganda with the being of God. You're playing propaganda with the glory of God. And they say in war, 
the first casualty is the truth. That was coined, I believe, by some senator from California way back in the 1800s, if my reading is correct. In war, the first casualty is the, is the truth. And when men began their warring against God, they began with, with what? Suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They killed the truth. And you've been following the current events with the unfolding situation in Eastern Europe. You see that the Western world has been shutting down Russian media companies. And Russia, in turn, has expelled the Western media in retaliation. Why? Because everyone wants to feed their own narrative to the minds of the people, to feed their own propaganda. And at the end of the day, it is the truth that suffers. We don't really know what actually is going on. So this is not a new thing. Technology has just made the task much easier. But the biggest casualty of truth happens when it is directed against God. That's the issue. When even professing Christians try to clean up God so that he becomes like one of us. He becomes approachable. He becomes docile, huggable. That is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But how is that even possible? How do people suppress the truth when they have not seen God and God has not spoken directly to them? Verse 19. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. That's a remarkable statement. That's a mouthful. God says, men are suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them or to them. It is Manifest to all men, the educated and uneducated. Even the staunchest of atheists knows that God exists. That's what God is saying. They could never ever say, God does not exist. They could say that to other men, but never to God. God says, <laughs> I have the exhibits to vindicate my charge against them because I have shown it to them not just to the atheist but to all the unbelievers they know I exist. God says he has shown it to them. He has made it plain. Actually, that's what the Greek word means. He has made it plain, made it visible and clear and says, here is my exhibit number one, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, plain, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Since the creation of the world, and that tells you that the world is not eternal. This mass of earth 
is not eternal. It has not always existed. It has a birthday. But what happened? God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. Why is that? Why could we not see God himself? Because God is spirit and cannot be seen with the naked human eye. But what can be seen are his works. What can be seen is his power in creation. His attributes of great power and glory are clearly seen and understood by the things that he has made, the things that he has done and continues to sustain. In Psalm 19, verse 1 to 3, David says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens, when you look up into the sky and see anything in there, whether clouds or stars or whatever you see, that's declaring the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, no language where the voice is not heard. There's not a single culture, single group of people anywhere on this planet who has never seen the stars. There's no speech, no language. So there's no person, doesn't matter where they are, who can say they don't know God exists. So your very existence is testimony of God's existence. Your very own existence is exhibit number one against yourself. Because we move, live, and have our being in him. That's what Paul said in the book of Acts. See that play of words between the invisible attributes and clearly seen. If something is invisible, then it should not be seen. It cannot be seen. Yes and no. God says, it is clearly seen even though I am invisible. Clearly seen derivatively from what has been made because the greater the engineering of the thing made, the greater the power and wisdom of him who made it. And that is what God is saying. That is eternal power. His eternal power. Pay attention to that. His eternal power and Godhead is demonstrated in his creation. Creation was by God to demonstrate his eternal power. Power that he has always possessed and still has to uphold all things, and yet he does not get tired of holding it up together. God never gets tired of holding his creation together. He never gets tired. He doesn't ever take a break. Because if he takes a break for two seconds, everything will come unglued. So Jesus, the word of God who upholds all things by the word of his power, and in whom all things consist. Even as he was in the manger, he was upholding all things by the word of his power. He was not a vulnerable manger baby as many make him to be. 
for the creation. That all men see reveals to some degree the character and some of the attributes of God. The creation does reveal. God has embedded knowledge of himself in his creation. And if you look carefully, you can find the gospel testimony in just about anything in creation. If you pay attention and use the right hermeneutic of reading it, you're going to see that God has preached the gospel in just about anything and everything. But Paul then concludes and says, there's not a single person who is not guilty before God. That's where he's going. This natural revelation of God has enough information about him for him to justly condemn all sinners. And Paul says, the result of all that revelation is so that they are without an excuse. There's not a single person who has a good excuse for their sin before God, who can plead ignorance as something that God will accept and say, oh yeah, Sean, I think you are ignorant about my existence. I think we're going to just have to make that pass. And some come and try to reason this away and say, well, that can't be right. That can't be true. What about our relatives or those people who lived long ago or some people on some remote island who never heard of the gospel? It's just not fair that God would say that. Why should God condemn them? Because they did not hear the gospel. God says that's a false argument. <laughs> God says that's a false argument. It does not hold water in God's court because the truth has been revealed to them. And Paul is going to continue with that argument into chapter 2. But here is scene number 2 of the pagan nations. Number 1 was suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Okay? Number 2 Ignoring God's revelation. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. People have no excuse. But in the matter of salvation, people need more than a natural revelation or natural light to come to God. You are not going to get the knowledge of imputed righteousness by just looking at the sky. They need to learn directly from God. They need to be born again. Because to come to God is a special revelation. God here is talking about natural revelation. So this general or natural revelation of God's existence is enough basis for God to condemn because God knows what he has made known to man. God knows what you know and things that you are supposed to know. 
and he also knows how they have suppressed that truth in unrighteousness and who is leading that charge of suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. So the witness of God or the witness to God in nature is so clear and so constant. It's clear and it's constant that ignoring it is indefensible because it is there every day for us to see it. So the condemnation of the Gentiles to whom God did not come and speak to directly as he did with the nation of Israel is based not on their rejecting Christ of whom they had not had but on sinning against the natural light that they possessed or even now possess. So their condemnation in chapter 1 of Romans is not based on their rejection of the gospel, but just to their natural sin of not glorifying God for who God is. Now to the third issue, verse 21, perverting God's glory. (laughs) Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. People's suppression of the truth is seen in their rejection of the clear evidence of God as the sovereign creator and their perversion of that knowledge in idolatry. All the peoples of the world, the Gentile world in this particular context, know and even then knew that God existed. That is what is being argued. And from the natural light they know God And with that knowledge, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. Nor were they thankful. See what God is asking of his creation, to be thankful to him, to glorify him. So that's the issue. Man's sin is that he or she did not glorify God as God. And even now, Do not thank him for all things to glorify him and thank him for his works, his works of creation. To say, thank you, God, for the sun and the moon and the rain, the trees and the animals and the life that you've given us and all the abilities that you've given us. Men and women are busy ascribing that power to themselves. Oh, I saved money. Oh, I went to this and... (laughs) they're not glorifying God they did not ascribe to his name the power and glory that he is the thing for which he created them God created us to acknowledge his glory to praise him for his glory and after Adam and Eve and the many generations that followed after them after their sin, 
they had some knowledge of God. They were not that distant from Adam and Eve. They were very aware of the things that God had spoken to Adam and Eve. Both Adam used to talk with God. They possessed that knowledge even as oral history. God made that knowledge accessible to their minds, but as iniquity increased, their minds became more darkened, became more distant from that knowledge, and it continues in our day. And that to say men and women are not getting better, read the news, people are not getting better. So much for progressive sanctification. So what was the effect of such rebellion? Two things. God says they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts became darkened. Their thoughts became useless, purposeless. Any thoughts that do not relate to the glory of God are useless thoughts. They are idle thoughts. Here Paul said this to the Ephesians, Believers, let's go to Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. Ephesians chapter 4, 17 to 19. Paul says, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Paul says their foolish hearts were darkened. Foolish hearts to say, Morally senseless, darkened in their understanding. And remember the Lord Jesus said this in Luke 11, in respect of that. Luke chapter 11, verses 34 to 36. The Lord said, the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. So that's the picture. He's using the eyes as a picture and then taking that to the spiritual reality of things. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. So that's, we know to be true in our natural life. If you lose your sight, then it's going to be darkness. Now, to the spiritual application. Verse 35. Therefore, Take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. The light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. You only have light that is not darkness, When Christ is in you, because Christ is the light. Apart from the gospel, there's no light. It's all darkness. And many claim to have light, but what they deem to be light 
in them is actually darkness. When the truth of God is rejected, there can only be darkness to take its place. If you turn off the lights, you can only get darkness. There's no (laughs) in-between. There's no in-between. The truth is the light. And Christ is that light. He is the truth. He is the light. He is the life. He is the way. And the same Jesus said in John 3.19, and this is the condemnation that the light has come. You see, he defines himself as the light. That the light has come into the world. And the natural condition of the world is what? It's darkness. Light is external to the world. Light is external to you and I. It has to come to us by way of Christ. The light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So that's the connection. And that is why the natural state of planet Earth is darkness. The natural state of planet Earth is darkness. The light that we have now has come to us by way of the sun that is shining this morning. That's God preaching. So that is Jesus' summary of man's total depravity. And Paul is also expanding on the discourse of the spiritual depravity of man or spiritual condition of all men. This doctrine is just so important for the church world to understand because it informs a lot of things about whether they believe the truth or not. God says, naturally, we are darkness dwellers. We love to pitch our tents in the darkness. And that is why Nicodemus came to Jesus at night to bear witness of his spiritual darkness. That's why John recorded that for us. It was more than fear of his comrades. If you only come to that conclusion, then you have missed the point. The point was not Nicodemus was necessarily hiding or was afraid of his comrades. No. John was teaching the matter of light and darkness. Because Jesus is the light. Nicodemus is the darkness. So the testimony of his darkness was there shown in the time that he came to see Jesus. And the Holy Spirit wanted you to know that he came at night. Okay? So that theme of light and darkness is very heavy in the book of John. Okay? Now, let's hear this. The result of their rejection of God's light, and this is going to be Romans 1, 22 and 23. The result of their rejection of God's light Professing to be wise, they became even more wise. <laughs> Professing to be wise, they became more wise and got a Nobel Prize. No, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and bears and four-footed animals and creeping things. I don't like creeping things. Just, just, yeah. 
I don't like creeping things. Just creep on you. No. <laughs> Suddenly men and women thought themselves to be wise because they have no reference point anymore. They are ascribing wisdom to themselves. All who reject God's truth think they do so because they are wise. But God says they became fools, they became stupid. Because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And yet fools refuse knowledge. So how is man's stupidity demonstrated? They graduated from worshipping God to worshipping things that God created. <laughs> Hear this again. Verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image mad like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And if it were possible, even five-footed animals or seven-footed animals. Creeping things. Creeping things have centipedes, millipedes. They have like 60 legs or whatever. People in their foolishness, which they call wisdom, change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man and birds and creeping things. They began to worship the creation, worshiping people, Hollywood stars, animals, ascribing that which belongs to God, to themselves, which is the heart of idolatry. When we ascribe things that belong to God to creatures, that's idolatry. And the Bible is awash with messages from God prohibiting idolatry. Moses to Israel entering the promised land said this in Deuteronomy 4. Let's go to Deuteronomy 4, 15 to 19. The warnings of idolatry, I would think they occupy almost 10 to 15 percent of the whole Old Testament. Deuteronomy 4, 15 to 19, take careful heed to yourselves. For you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth, and take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, or the horse of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. God has given all this creation as a heritage for us to enjoy and praise God for and not worship. And if you still remember, Aaron, the brother of Moses, 
with all that he knew about God, still made a golden calf from the women's earrings for Israel when Moses had gone up to Mount Sinai to receive the law. Moses went up to Mount Sinai. He was there for 40 days or so. And the people were like, man, we don't know what happened to this Moses. Make us some golden calf so that we can worship. And we'd have thought for Aaron to say, no, 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 we can't do this. <laughs> no, no, he's like, oh, bring the earrings. Let's melt them, let's melt them. We're going to make you a nice God, shiny God right here on Mount Horeb. <laughs> the matter of idolatry is a huge topic in both the Old and the New Testaments. And Israel was warned over and over not to get attracted to the gods of the surrounding nations or to make their own. Because they do not corrupt yourselves by making an image in the form of any kind of figure. Don't do that. Leviticus 26 verse 1 says, You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. Don't put my face on Mount Rushmore, because I don't belong there. You've never seen my face. And that is say, All these people, we have the pictures of Jesus. Why you have pictures of Jesus? What camera did you use to get a picture of Jesus? <laughs> Men and women have not stopped worshipping idols. And they will not stop. Because this is the most profitable business there is in religious terms. Remember the riot that happened at Ephesus. You can be opening to Acts 19. When Paul came and preached the gospel there. Acts 19, starting from verse 23. I love this story. I just love this story. <laughs> Acts 19, 23. Look, records and says, And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way, and the way is to say the gospel of Christ. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He was making a killing. Okay. Business was good. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Man, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. We pay our bills and mortgages by this trade. We go on vacation on this trade. We have private jets with this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are mad with hands, and I have problems with that. 
Paul is telling people that these cannot be gods that have been made with the hands and that cannot be right because if that is true, then we are out of business and our very own way of life has been destroyed. Verse 27. <laughs> what a mercy. So not only is this child of ours in danger, <laughs> oh man, I love this story. So not only is this child of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were so happy. No, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana. Worshipping idols. A very lucrative business. Yeah? So men and women are worshipping the creation, Mother Nature. They are tree huggers. They worship the planet. They worship evolution. They ascribe to evolution the things that God made in us. Oh, after 20 million years, we began to... Whatever. No. They worship the cows in India. They worship the statue of Buddha that they made. They know they actually carved out the statue of Buddha. They worship themselves. They worship the Pope. Yeah? And if they're more religious and have a Bible... But God has not given them repentance from idolatry. They worship human free will. This is the heart and center of it. Free will theology is just a carving out of idols. Because free will theology refuses to give all power to God. And that is why we oppose it. Because it is an idol factory worshiping the will and power of the sinful and depraved creature to cause salvation which thing God alone is able to do that's why we oppose it suppressing the truth ignoring God's natural revelation and perverting God's revelation has consequence this is what God has done to those who have denied his truth verse 24 going back to Romans 1 Results of condemnation. This is what God has done. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the last of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. God gave them up or over to uncleanness. God abandoned men and women to uncleanness, to filthiness, in the last of their hearts to do what? To dishonor their bodies among themselves. God is he who abandoned them. He did not give them a choice of what they want to be. He made them to follow this course. Pay attention to that. Verse 25. Who exchanged 
the truth of God for the lie. So there was an exchange. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Men and women exchanged the truth of God for the lie with the result that they worshipped and served the creature rather than God who is the creator who is blessed forever. And we see a lot of depravity in our day, in the schools, in government dealings, in policies, in society at large, in the shady manner in which business is done everywhere. Whether it's communist, it's socialist, it's capitalist, there is worship of the creature and the serving of the creature. Worship of money and the things that money buy. That's the total religion of man. To worship the creature, as I said, means to ascribe the powers of God to the creature. To ascribe power to serve something that has no power to serve itself or anyone. You can't talk about your will being free if your will cannot cause anything. We can't put men and women at the center of things. Okay, we can't do that. But pay attention to this. God did not just let people to go their natural way. He actually directed that course and abandoned or gave them over to a particular course of life that would increase and show their depravity and increase their sin. And that is a sovereignty statement. For people who say, oh no, God cannot be involved in evil things. No, he is. (laughs) It is God who gave them over to uncleanness. And if God has given you over to something You cannot come out of it by your own power. If God has given you over to something, you cannot say, oh, I am trying hard to get out of this. It's not going to happen. You cannot come out unless God grants it. And if you do come out, you praise him for his power and his grace to give you the power to conquer it. Otherwise, you're not going to win it. There's no way. You can't fight this with New Year's resolutions. It's impossible. This is why I always say to people, you can't fight sin by promising to do better. That's not how it works. But how did this being given over to uncleanness show itself? Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. They exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. So God has a way that he has determined for women to be and for men to be and how they relate to one another. Verse 27. Likewise, also the man, leaving the natural use of the woman, banned in their lust for one another, man with man committing what is shameful, 
and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Men and women using their bodies contrary to God's intent and design and calling it no more and saying, Oh, I was born like that. Born that way. Lady Gaga. <laughs> yes, born that way because of God's condemnation. Born that way because of sin. Born that way does not mean that a practice is acceptable to God as long as it runs contrary to his prescription and order of things that won't hold water with him. There's a lot of foolishness going on. Wife swapping. Yeah? If you just want to go through the matter of depravity as it is happening here and now, it's staggering. And in my reading, this is what I learned. Among the things that a Putin takeover of Ukraine is feared, the European Union and Ukraine, is that he will impose what is called the Putin law that will suppress alternative lifestyles and the teaching of LBGQT philosophy to children. Putin opposes such. You can go and read it. you find it online. And he's being ridiculed by the sinful world for it. Not that Putin is a righteous person himself, but the very fact that he has put in place a law to prevent the social engineering of young and malleable minds of children proves Roman, Romans 1 teaching to be true. And for this reason, and among other pressing things, he is being vilified as a deranged man. Now, in the context of our present-day society, we have genderless people, we have promotion of gender fluidity, where one person can wake up in the morning as a girl, and by the end of the day, they are a boy, depending on their mood, and the opposite is true. And language is being changed to reflect all this Language to decide to confuse, to legitimize a lot of the sickness. I'm speaking here from the standpoint of God, the way that God sees it. Language is being used to legitimize a lot of the foolishness. Big heads of government, big heads of industry and commerce are in this depravity. They use their power, they use their money, they use their influence. Child trafficking for sexual exploitation is big business and is being done by the very well-to-do people, very educated, very powerful, very moneyed people. And it is not a new thing. It was rife in Rome. It was rife in the time of Noah, in the time of Lot, hear what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19, let's go to Genesis 19. We'll just read from verse 1 to 11. Moses says, Now the two angels came to Sodom 
in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn in to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on, and go on your way. And they said, No, but we'll spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned in to him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and begged unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house to greet these angels and say, Oh, come to the neighborhood, we so love you. No, hear this, verse 5. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men since this is the reason they've come under the shadow of my roof do nothing to these men. I'm even willing to give you my daughters. Let's see if they agreed. Verse 9. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and put Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. They were so determined still. They were so determined. Even in that blindness, too determined. God had given them over the men of Sodom and Gomorrah to vile passions. This way back when. This way when you're talking lot, you're very close to Adam. It's way back when. And hear Peter's commentary on the matter. Let's go to Second Peter. Second Peter 2, 40, Apostle Peter says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world but saved Noah for the same issue because the wickedness had really increased in the time of Noah. One of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, which means a preacher of the gospel, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them 
tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. We'll expound this some other time when we get to that book. But Peter comes by the Holy Spirit to give credence to the story of Noah, to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the wickedness thereof. And in the time of Paul, Nero, the Roman emperor, we are told he married his male slave. Idolatry and all manner of sin was rife in the Roman Empire. Here's what I read from David Guzik. I'm just going to read verbatim. He says, Paul wrote to a culture where homosexuality was accepted as a part of life for both men and women. For some 200 years, men who openly practiced homosexuality, often with young boys, ruled the Roman Empire. At times, the Roman Empire specifically taxed, approved homosexual prostitution and gave boy prostitutes a legal holiday. Legal marriage between same-gender couples was recognized and even some of the emperors married other men. At the very time Paul was writing, Nero was emperor. He took a boy named Sporus and had him castrated, then married him with a full ceremony, brought him to the palace with a great procession, and made the boy his wife. Later, Nero lived with another man, and Nero was the wife. (laughs) You can go and read a whole lot of this foolishness on the internet about Nero specifically. Just go and read. You're going to be amazed by the stuff and the depth of depravity. But the point is, no matter the time or the generation, you're going to find sinners. God gave people over to expressions of a corrupt lifestyle that deserved God's wrath and the sentence of death. Verse 28 of Romans 1. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Pagans did not like to retain the knowledge of God. They rejected it. They put it out of their minds. They flushed it out. And God's judgment was giving men and women over to a debased mind, in other words, to a mind that is disapproved of God. If you have a mind that is disapproved of God, all that you do is sin, even when you're just sitting on your couch, you're sinning, you're eating on your table, you're sinning, 
You're taking a shower, you're sinning, you're dreaming, you're sinning. Because your mind is disapproved of God. As Genesis 6.5 says, every intent of the thoughts of his heart, of the hearts of men, was only evil continually. This is Genesis 6. This is chapter 6. The intent of the thoughts. Evil continually. Bent towards evil. And that kind of mind has no governor to do right. Rather to the doing of those things that are not fitting, things that are not proper. Things like what? Verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. Inventors of evil things. That is remarkable for me. This was written more than 2,000 years ago, and God had that in there. They didn't have any lab science experiments to do, and yet God said, inventors of evil things like COVID, like biolabs. I've been reading a lot of this stuff in the past week. It's insane. Some of the tools of science that are available now for gene editing, for weaponizing viruses and bacteria and making them more potent, making... In one of the articles that I read, written by some Indian doctor, making viruses that are race-specific, that will just go and attack a particular people. And these are men and women who are highly educated, but who have a debased mind coming from whoever is financing them, whether it's governments doing it, whether it's big pharmaceutical companies or whoever is doing it, they are inventors of evil and God knows about it. And God has given them over to do the very things. This is the amazing thing about God's sovereignty. He will cause you to do those things and still make you responsible for doing those things that he doesn't approve. He will approve of things that he doesn't approve. Inventors of evil things to be honest, you could do 200 messages that are five hours long if you really want to go and dig deeper into this matter of inventors of evil things. Disobedient to parents. Discipline. It's getting harder and harder to discipline the children of today. You can't discipline them. Undiscerning. Untrustworthy. Give people money, whatever it is, you're not going to get it back. (laughs) Unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Who? God says. Knowing the righteous judgment of God. They know the righteous judgment of God. All these people that have been listed know the righteous judgment of God. And this list is nowhere to being exhaustive of the sins and the vices. 
who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So the vacuum that was created by abandoning and suppressing the truth of God was filled with some serious sins against God. And it is a trailer lord of sins. And there's not a single person who can escape from such a list. That's a big list. But there is an interesting thing to their sin and depravity, God says. These people, knowing the righteous judgment of God, they know the righteous judgment of God. And what is that judgment? That those who practice such things, those who continue to do such things in open defiance to God are deserving of death. They are deserving of death. Even unbelievers of the gospel know from natural light that the wages of sin is death. But what do they do? What do they do? Knowing this about God's righteous judgment. The text says, not only do they do the same things, but also approve of those who practice them. They approve of them. They go and approve. Pat someone on the back. Promote for more freedom of operation to practice these sins. They lobby, they form organizations, they march, they look for money, they yell, they make flags, they even go to war. Yes, some of these wars are financed by people who are trying to open ways for their own depravity. I am telling you the truth. Some of these people, so powerful, in this big trans- Atlantic transnational organizations, the impoverished nations and peoples who don't bend to their ideas of freedom so that they can come and openly practice all these foolishness. And these are things that anyone who pays attention knows to be happening in this very country and the world. Yeah? So God's judgment. To all the pagan sinners is death. If God were to come here and right now and look just at America, he only has one option but to wipe it off. It doesn't matter where. You go to England, you go to Japan, you go to Africa. He only has one option. He can only wipe people off. That's the only thing that he could do. So his judgment is death. You must die because you are deserving of hell and death here is condemnation. It's just not you just dying and lying in your casket. It means being condemned to hell and that is his righteous judgment. And now (laughs) that leaves everyone hopeless and that's the point. That's the point. 
That's the point of this whole thing. He wants to leave everyone hopeless, the best of them, to the least of them, they have to be brought to the same point of hopelessness, doesn't matter where they are. And that is what the Holy Spirit is driving at. That you and I, by nature, are a hopeless being. We are hopeless people. The Roman, the Greek in their wisdom, in their high civilization, these are the pagans of the day. They were hopeless and condemned. The barbarians, in their foolishness and lower culture, hopeless and condemned. And to our time and day, Hollywood and its celebrities in their plastic surgery, their red carpet, scant dressing, hopeless and condemned. <laughs> the Dalai Lama, Gandhi, with their good philosophy, hopeless and condemned. Tom Cruise and the Church of Scientology, hopeless and condemned. Madonna and Kabbalah, hopeless and condemned. The annual pilgrimage to Mecca, hopeless and condemned. Mary and the Holy Rosary, hopeless and condemned. Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, and their paper money, hopeless and condemned. You and I standing by ourselves, guilty of the same things, and more, hopeless and condemned. And that's the doctrine of total depravity and human ability as God sees things. This is Romans 1 country, the title of our message. Everywhere where humans inhabit is Romans 1 country. Surely America is Romans 1 country. There's no two ways about it. But it is not alone, like I said. It shares the title with everyone across the world, wherever human beings are found. But it openly defends the rights of the depraved things that God opposes. So this doctrine of the human condition. We are speaking of the human condition of human total depravity and human inability to do anything about it. It's very foundational to believing the truth about Christ and what he has done is foundational to the message of grace and peace. And now, if you've understood Romans 1 country, you can only talk about imputed righteousness as your hope before God. There's no more, oh, I'm progressing in righteousness. Oh, no, I'm getting better and better. No, not if you belong to Romans 1 country. Not if your zip code is Romans 1 country. If we come out of Romans 1 thinking that men and women have some ounce of goodness left in them to seek after God, to be righteous by themselves, to choose and come to Christ, to decide eternal matters, then we are bewitched. God has not granted us the truth. We cannot come out of that by ourselves. That is a prison that is unbreakable. We cannot come out of that prison by ourselves. And Paul, by the Holy Spirit, 
purposefully lays this foundation so that the conversation that follows becomes the best news that you have ever had. And he says, I am data, I am a data to both Greeks and barbarians to bring some good news to them. Good news of Christ and what he has done about this very matter that I've just outlined. He has been made a data to declare this message. He owes God's people the declaration, the broadcasting of this message. He cannot withdraw or hide from them. He cannot hide this message in unrighteousness. He cannot suppress the truth of God's righteousness. This is good news to any and all who see themselves stuck in Romans 1 country. Even those at Rome, because Rome was a Roman one, Romans 1 country, it wasn't as pretty and glamorous as it is portrayed in some circles in some areas. This is something very important. People accuse us of being antinomians. Truthfully, can you bring such a person that has been described in Romans 1 to the obedience of the law? This is a very honest question. Knowing what the law demands, the law demands perfection. Can you get perfection out of one who lives in the Romans 1 country? Is that even a possibility? No, it is not. It is too late to bring one to the obedience of the law. But it is not late to bring one to the obedience of faith. <laughs> because faith does not require you to do anything. Even though you were found in Romans 1 country. That's what Paul is saying. The obedience of faith is an obedience to a work that is already done. The obedience of faith says, even though you were in Romans 1 country, all your sins are not imputed to you. Okay? An obedience of faith lists the sentence of death from Romans 1. Because remember, Paul ends in verse 32 and says, they deserve to die. That's the conclusion of the matter. And the obedience of faith comes and says, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Hear this again, Romans 1, verse 16 and 17. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So after all that you have heard from Romans 1 and know about yourself, can you be ashamed of the gospel of Christ? That says none of your sins are imputed to you. That it is done like done. The gospel of Christ 
is the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes, to everyone who does not work for it. It is not of works, but of faith, of believing. In this gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. God reveals his righteousness in this gospel by saving you, even though you were unsavable. You who were under sin and its condemnation. It is good news. This gospel is good news. It declares to us that the just. How do you get the just out of Romans 1 country? That's the question. How do you get the righteous from Romans 1 country? Paul says the just shall live by faith. They shall live by the faith of Christ, even as they are found in the sins that have been outlined in the Romans 1 country. We are not accepted from the sins of Romans 1 country. We leave them. We know them. But how do we come out of that? How do you come out of that? Because someone is going to say, okay, I've been convicted today. I think I'm going to make another resolution <laughs> to make my record straight. Too late. It's too late to make your record straight by yourself. You can't clean up. It's so dirty, it can't be cleaned up. And here's God's solution. Here this. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Paul says, this kind of like a, a reduced, a condensed list of Romans 1. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's true. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, no drunkards, no revilers, no extortioners who inherit the kingdom of God. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if we stop there, then we are of all people the most miserable. Because that will shut us in prison. And thank God for verse 11. And such were some of you. That has to always be underlined. <laughs> but such were some of you. But this what happened. You were washed. But you were sanctified. You were washed with what? With some dishwashing soap? With some dawn soap? Some degreaser? But you were washed. But you were sanctified. You were made holy. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. <laughs> you were justified. Which means all those sins were not and will not be imputed. To your account. And such were some of you. Such was I, but I was washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. No imputation of sins. So when someone attacks the doctrine of imputation, they've taken away all your hope. That's why it has to be defended. That is why anybody who 
does not speak of righteousness by way of imputation is not telling the truth. They will talk about your obedience. I'm like, oh, I'm already Romans 1, man. <laughs> I have no obedience to talk about. Take me to verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6. There's hope for me. I was washed. I was sanctified. None of my sins were imputed to me. They were imputed to Christ. Christ as my surety, as my substitute, my representative. He took on the sin debt of all my activities in Romans 1. And see that. Paul uses the past tense. He says, but such were some of you. Was Paul saying these Corinthian saints had actually stopped all these sins? So why then does he use past tense? Because they were justified in Christ. It already happened. The justification already happened. They were justified in the person of Christ, in the one act of obedience by Christ Jesus. And that's what has made it past tense. Otherwise, for you and I, in our experience of it, it's still going to be in the present tense, even present continuous tense. It's only past because of the cross. So you have been justified from all things that the law could not justify you. The law could not make you holy. The law could not justify you. But Christ has done what the law could not do. He has made you holy. He has made you righteous. Made you accepted before God. Yeah? And because of that, because of that, Paul could have started with verse 18 of Romans 1 or the way to 32 and then start off at verse 1 to 17. But he did the very opposite. He brought the good news, then he brought the hopelessness in preparation to bring back the goodness. Okay? So Paul, knowing that, says, Romans 1, 7, to all who are in Rome... Beloved of God, called saints. <laughs> to all who are in Rome, who have had everything that I've just written in chapter 1. Beloved of God, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody was smiling. You're like, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. God, this is an amazing thing. Given what we just learned from Romans 1, Paul says God actually has some people from among this pile of depraved beings whom he calls the beloved of God, called saints. And he says to them, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. And that's the gospel. This is Christ's gospel. Yes, you are in Romans 1 country, but grace and peace to you. This is salvation. This is the good news. This is the God you should worship, not the creation. This grace is free. God did not find you and I in the pews at church. He found us, all of us, in Romans 1 country, in darkness, 
And he translated us into the marvelous light of the kingdom of his son. By his grace and by his grace alone. So we stand as those who have hope because of the son. Pay attention. We only stand because of the son. We only stand because of his obedience. We only stand because of God's grace in not imputing our sins to us. We only stand because the same God has imputed the righteousness of Christ to us. So grace and peace to those beloved of God. This is good news for those who find themselves in Romans 1 country, but not all of them, only those who are beloved of God, called saints. Okay? Amen. We are done. Praise God. Okay? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you. We thank you for the many wonderful things that we learned from the teaching of Apostle Paul, Romans 1, of the condition of all men because of sin as sinners, darkness dwellers, given over to a debased mind to do that which is unlawful, which is worthy of death. And yet somehow, somewhere, there's some light, there's some hope, there's some good news for these many men and women who can't save themselves, that from among them God chose a people to himself, the saints, beloved of God, and he saved them, did not impute their sins to them, granted them life and righteousness in Christ, and that is the good news. And this is the good news only if we hear it as sinners, not as self-righteous people. We thank you for the testimony of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you cause your people to hear, those who are here and those that are far. We thank you for everybody who came to listen. May you keep them, guide them in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.